Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together. I was trying to think of a witty. I had nothing. <laughs> so we'll just go to prayer. Lord, thank you for tonight. Today, I should say, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship that we can enjoy. Thank you for this facility. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us. Lord, you would take these words written to one guy and make application to each one of our lives as well. Lord, as you do, you do it again and again and again as we uh, look into your word. Your word is living. It is active. So bless it once more. And Lord, uh, like Christian prayed, Lord, give us hearts that are prepared to receive. Lord, to know that your way is higher than our way. It's better than our way. Lord, that you know better. And it, it does us well to sit under and receive and then make application. So we're just praying, Lord, that this would be a, a valuable time together. And we ask this once more in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we are in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, so go ahead and start finding that particular uh, book of your Bibles. If you're borrowing one from the chair in front of you there, you can see we, we put the page number there to make it easier for you. I, I want to just remind you, if you were here last week, you know this, it's a quick review, a page or so of my notes, not very much, uh, but we are in now what are called the pastoral epistles. Uh, a letter written to pastors, uh, to church leaders. It's about organizing and administrating and overseeing a body of believers or a church. And so certainly it applies to our lives because here we are, we're sitting in a church. It, it applies to ministry leaders of some, some sort, of how you go about leading other people. And I think it is really applicable on, on sort of this common level for each of us as we seek to walk with Christ and serve the Lord, what are the principles that God has established uh, to do that wisely? And so you're a dad, you're a mom, you're a business leader, you're an employee at work, whatever it might be, you're a student, a kid, you can apply this for the life that you find yourself living in. Now specifically, the pastoral epistles are made up of the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So two men, three books written to those men, for the work of ministry that each one of them had, Paul was going to give them some insight, some direction, in some cases, some commands. He started in verse 1 of chapter 1. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. We spent time on that last week. He goes on to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's no doubt as to who this book is written to and who it's written by. It was written by Paul. It was written to this fellow Timothy here. Timotheus, as some of your older versions might see it in there. Same guy we're talking about. And he's a fellow that we're relatively familiar with. We have a lot of information about this guy in our Bibles. His name appears 24 times in the New Testament. Seven of those times it appears in the book of Acts. So he works into that narrative account. We, we see this guy, Timothy, in those narratives. But 17 times, and I think it's kind of interesting and maybe perhaps significant, 17 times the name Timothy appears in Paul's letters. And so Paul, as he's writing all of these different letters to different people, 
mentions this fellow Timothy, or in the cases that we have here, he writes specifically to this fellow Timothy. And that gives us some insight into this man, and I think it gives us some insight into what Paul thought of this man. Now, the first time that we are introduced to Timothy, chronologically, is in Acts chapter 16. And we studied Acts uh, together about a year and a half ago, two years ago. I have a feeling most of us forgot specifically what Acts 16 was about, um, so I will remind you. I'll remind you this, that by the time we get to chapter 16, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, by the time we get to chapter 16, the central human figure of the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. Very good class. All right, obviously, the Holy Spirit is the central figure, but the essential or the central human figure is this fellow by the name of Paul. And by the time we come to chapter 16, Paul is just about beginning or has just begun his second missionary journey. So remember, we have those three missionary journeys recorded by Paul and the time that he's taken on a, he didn't volunteer, he was a prisoner on maybe another one of those journeys, we could call it. Um, but here now, at the end of chapter 15, the beginning of 16, Paul is just starting his second missionary journey. We have a pretty good idea of when that occurred. It occurred around the year 50 to the year 52 A.D., Paul's writing this book to Timothy around the year 62 or so A.D. So he's come to know Timothy for about 10 years or so uh, after the second missionary journey. And one of the stops on that journey was a town called Lystra. And that is where Timothy was from. And that's where he's introduced to specifically, might have said hi to him in passing the last time he was there, but that's where he's specifically introduced to this man, this young man and interacts with him and learns a little bit about him. Here's what Luke had to say about that. Luke is the guy who wrote the book of Acts. He said, now Paul also came to the cities of Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Remember, in the early part of the early church, most believers came from a Jewish background. And so what we learn here is this, this fellow Timothy, and particularly his mom, had come from a Jewish background, but had come to recognize that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. That's what she believed in. She was a believer in that sense. And so Timothy comes from a background where mom is a Jew and pouring into his life things from the Old Testament, but dad is a Greek. And pouring into his life, presumably, things from that particular culture. And in the midst of it, Timothy comes to know the Lord as well. Like his mom, like his grandma, we learn in another place, he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, Acts 16 is not the first time that Paul had been in the city of Lystra. We learn actually that during the first missionary journey, Timothy's name is never mentioned, but we learn that during the first missionary journey, that Paul had gone to the city of Lystra and that he had preached the gospel and that he went in explaining how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies. So all of those things that little Timothy learned from his Jewish mom, from his Jewish grandmom, Paul now comes in, explains how all of them point to Jesus. And many people in the city became Christians. And we think, and it's, it seems like a pretty good bet, including young Timothy. Now here in Acts 16, you all with me still? Okay. It's four years later. 
And Paul comes back to the town. And it seems almost as if Paul is interviewing, look, I need, I'm looking to hire someone. I'm looking to hire a young man that'll come alongside of me, that'll assist me, that'll help me. I'm going on this new missionary journey, the second missionary journey, and I could really use a fellow to come along. Now, I'm not just looking for anybody. I want a kid that loves the Lord. I want a kid that's willing to be a servant. I want a kid that maybe knows some things but doesn't really need to. I just want a kid that's willing to come and to learn and be alongside of me on this trip and could be an, an aid to me as opposed to a detriment to me. You got anybody like that here? And word came back, yeah, we do. There's a kid here. Now, we say kid. He was probably 20. But there's a kid here. His name is Timothy. I think he'd be great for you. And so we read this somewhere. Oh, boy, I got excited. I got ahead of myself. Somewhere we're going to read, people said, Timothy's pretty awesome. Uh, we'll get to it uh, at some point in time here. And so here now in Lystra, Paul comes there, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but again it says his father was a Greek. Somewhere between the first visit, or I shouldn't say somewhere, during the time from the first visit to the second visit, Timothy grew as a disciple, a learner. That's what the word disciple means. It means a learner. It's come to mean for us this idea of a close follower of the Lord. And the people in that community observed it, they saw it, and thus they recommend to Paul that he bring this young man with him. This is not the first time in our Bibles that we see that pattern where an older brother or sister in the faith will bring alongside of them a younger brother or sister in the faith. Whereas this younger brother and sister in the faith, they're not completely ready, but it's an opportunity for them to come, be alongside of, to observe, to learn, to put some things into practice. And we see a lot of examples of that in the scripture. We learn names like Silas is one of those that Paul brought with him on some of his trips. We learn names obviously like Timothy and Titus. We saw the example in our study of Acts of that young man, Mark, and how Mark came along with Paul. Things didn't go real well. He failed. He left, and then Barnabas said, you know what, I'll give you another shot. Come with me. And he came alongside of Barnabas, and he learned, and he grew. And aren't you glad he did? Have you ever read that gospel? That's a pretty good book of your Bible, isn't it? And he had the opportunity to learn all these things sitting with some of these older men in the faith, growing and learning. And so we see this mentor-type role that men and women play in the scriptures with other young men or other young women. This is what I'm reminded of Paul. He write, he'll write this, you'll see it when we get there, in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, he says, You then, my child, he's writing again to Timothy, he says, You then, my child. Now at this point, I'm sorry, I know I'm all over. I had sugar this morning. Uh, <laughs> 2 Timothy Timothy is closer now to about 35 years old. He's really moving into, like, it's clear adulthood. You're the leader now, Timothy. I'm trusting you. Last letter that Paul wrote uh, is 2 Timothy, obviously the last one he wrote to Timothy. So he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he says, Timothy, remember how I kind of took you under my wing? I want you to start looking around and take other people under your wing and to begin to invest into them and pour into them. Find those younger men, pour into those younger men. Let them gain some practical ministry experience without perhaps all the pressure of being the leader, 
Let them get a little bit of confidence. Let them get a little bit of grounding. And then give them opportunity and empower them to take on the work of the ministry for themselves. That's the pattern of Scripture. Paul would not be around forever. Timothy would not be around forever. And even if they were around forever, they're limited to this space and that space. But there's lots of other spaces out there. And so Paul very practically raises up other people to come alongside and then after them. I hope that's a word of encouragement to each of you. You're always, almost certainly, a little bit ahead of somebody else. I encourage you, look back, so to speak, from the path that you've already walked on and see if there's somebody that you can help along in the process and in the journey and you can answer their questions and be a support to them and bring them along a little further in their walk as well. That's what you should be we should be focused on doing. We're a body of believers. We're family of believers. All right, look for those that you can support, even as others, maybe if you didn't even realize that we're supporting you in your particular journey. And so here we are, we're at the beginning of this second missionary journey. As I said, Paul is receiving recommendations, and the recommendation that comes for an aid is this fella, Timothy. This relationship here will continue for 15 to 20 years between Paul pouring into this fella, Timothy. And you'll see here, he says in verse 2, he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, my son in the faith. As far as we know, Paul didn't have any physical children, but Timothy became like a son to him. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he says this, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In the book of Philippians, he references Timothy, and he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. In that same passage, he says this about Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So Paul had a, a deep affection for this young man, and he truly saw him as a son in the faith, a person who he could pass the ministry on to. He saw a young man that it, it, was, it was wise of him to pour his life into that young man because he knew someday that young man would be doing what it was that he was doing. Now, if you look at Paul and all those narratives about Paul, and you look at Timothy and all those things we learn about Timothy, what you discover is these were not a clone of one another. Timothy, Paul was like, I'll stand up wherever you want. King, I'll talk to that king. Sure, bring him here. Or I'll go to him. What, okay, I'll go to him. You know, and Paul would talk to anybody. And you throw stones, go ahead, throw it. You know, I, I've been around, you know, and, and Paul was just brave. He was courageous, you know, very smart and intelligent and wise. Um, he could make an argument, such an incredible logical thinker. Timothy, we get the impression of Timothy, he was timid. He was fearful. He had to be encouraged constantly. Look, man, it, it, yes, I know it's scary, but you got to do it. You know, those kinds of things. We learned that he was physically frail, that he was sick a lot, that he had difficulties in that regard. Very opposite-looking people. And yet, what does Paul say about him? I don't know anyone that is more genuine than myself, genuinely concerned for your welfare, than Timothy. So very different in some ways, but very, very similar in other ways. Second thing, notice this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
He says, this is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. What's he called Timothy? He calls him faithful. So Timothy isn't commended there for his boldness. Think about how you might read that. I I sent to you Timothy because nobody else is willing to stand up front of people and say what needs to be said like Timothy. So boldness is good. He doesn't commend him for his courage. He doesn't even commend him. Man, nobody is as sharp as Timothy. That guy's mind, man. Woo! But what he commends him for is his faithfulness. He commends him for his faithfulness. That's what we're told about this fellow. And that's really encouraging to me. And I would hope it's encouraging to you. And the reason I say that is because while I can't completely control, there's things that we can do to control how great a speaker we are. We can take some classes and practice and elocute and all that kind of stuff. We could do that. And I think we should if this is our calling. And while we can't control how sharp our minds are necessarily, you're not the brightest guy. Yeah, you're right. You know, but we could try and we could read some books and try to think through things and dialogue with people and try and develop those skills and all of that. While we can't control the miraculous, Paul, God used him to do some miracle type things. I can't control that. I said, God, if you want to do that in me, do that in me. But it all comes from him. It's not something that I can do. But what I can control is whether or not I am faithful. And you can too. What we can control is whether we're faithful or not. So when I think about this from sort of this practical perspective, certainly in the ministry work that we do, we volunteer here, we serve over there, we work here at this church, whatever it might be. But if you break it down to even just more practical than that, think about being an employee. Think about being a kid in your parents' home. We have some kids here in the room with us. Think about being a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. And you may not be at your place of work. You may not be the most valuable employee. Everyone's looking at you like, oh, we need that guy. He's so good. If, if he left, we'd fall apart. She fall, left, we'd fall apart. So you may not be the most valuable in that regard, but you can certainly control the fact that you show up every day and that you show up on time every single day. That's faithfulness. And let me tell you, employers appreciate that very much. You can control that while you're at work, that you're attentive to the task that you've been hired to do. You can control the fact that you're someone that can be relied upon there at your place of business. All of those things are under your control, and that's faithfulness. And in ministry, faithfulness is this important concept that runs throughout the Bible, that God is looking for. God sees it as an essential character that he wants in each of his children and that he wants to cultivate in the lives and the type of person that each of his children become. The Apostle Paul, he declared that no character trait is more important than the character trait of faithfulness. He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, moreover, it is required of a steward that they be found to be smart, courageous, bold, great logical thinkers. He says, moreover, more than anything else, it's required of a steward. Now, a steward is a manager. And so you don't own the business, but the the owner of the business puts you in that place. Look, I want you to manage things while I'm not here. Moreover, it is required of a manager that they be found faithful. 
And the, the context is God has given us a charge. He has placed something in our sphere to oversee. We are stewards of that, the message of the gospel. Moreover, it is required of us that we be found faithful. There's a parable that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And in this, uh, it's one of his closing parables, actually. And it talks about these, these folks that are doing their various labor, these tenants, farmers of sorts that are doing their various labor. And what, what I find to be interesting is at the end of the parable, the commendation that comes of the figures in the parable that we're supposed to look to and say, I want to be like him and not like them. The people that we're looking for, the condemnation that they, the, the commendation, not condemnation, commendation they receive is well done, good, and faithful servant. Of all the things that they could be commended for, they're commended for their faithfulness. We also see in that passage there, God's philosophy, uh, sort of how he operates. And what we see in there is that God rewards those that have proven themselves faithful in little by entrusting them with a little bit more. So that passage, it says this, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. And so he rewards faithfulness. Now, I think this is an important concept. He doesn't reward faithfulness from the perspective of, you have earned it. I'm going to give you a raise. That's not why God is going to place them over much. He, they're placed over little. They've established that they're faithful in that little. And thus, God can trust them to place them over more because he's confident they'll be faithful over more. You see the difference? One is, you did really good, here's your bonus check. That's not what it's about with the Lord. It's about the opportunity to serve even more of his children because you've proven yourself faithful. And Timothy is one of those such individuals. And so here now in this book of 1 Timothy, after nearly 20 years of ministering alongside of the Apostle Paul, Paul now entrusts him with perhaps his biggest task to date, which again is overseeing maybe one of the most influential churches of the first century, the body of believers that are there in the city of Ephesus. Timothy, I need you to oversee this church, and I need you to put some things in order that ha are, are not in order currently. And first, though, notice, before we get to that, notice what he does. He prays for Timothy. So he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, and it seems like a greeting, but it really is a prayer. He says to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice again how Paul links together God the Father with Christ Jesus our Lord. Doesn't see them as one, one deity and something lesser. Puts them on an equal uh, playing field here. And he says to him, grace, mercy, and peace. Now at first glance, that's just sort of like the hello. I'm sure you've had instances where you, you say to someone, hey, how are you? And then they answer. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't really want to know. You know, I was just, it's what we say. All right. So we could look at this and say, Paul is just saying, hey, grace, mercy, peace to you. Now let me get to the good stuff. But I don't think we should skip over this because I think what Paul does here is pronounce a very important triple blessing, three of them, triple blessing over Timothy's life here. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. If you go back and you look at Paul's letters, again, he wrote the 13 of them. If you go back and you look at them, 
Paul regularly says grace and peace to you. But to Timothy and to Titus, in those three letters, he says to them grace, mercy, and peace to you. Now that may mean nothing, or it might be quite significant. How's that for clarity? Alrighty. I think there is something significant about it, about it because these are letters that were written to ministers in particular, and they certainly apply to other people, but specifically to people that are in the process of serving other people. Now, let me tell you, as we serve others in ministry of some sorts, we need God's mercy. Amen? We need God's grace, certainly so. We need God's peace. Everybody needs God's mercy. But those that are attempting to serve the Lord in ministry, and Paul knows what that's like, Paul knows these guys are going to need God's mercy in their life as well. And so he says, grace, mercy, and peace to you. Again, this is ultimately his prayer for them. His prayer that despite all of the outward difficulties, all the turmoil that these guys are going to experience because they decided to step up from sort of down here of being served by someone else to this point here now where I'm responsible for somebody else. He knew that they were going to face difficulties and turmoil and encounter doubt and all that. He knew they would need grace, mercy, and peace. And so he says that to, the, to him, grace, mercy, and peace to you. I mean, let's talk about each one of these. A lot of times we look at grace. We think of grace. Grace has been defined, you've heard it perhaps, as God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And many times when we think of grace, we think of that initial salvation experience where God's grace came into my life. I was forgiven of my sins. And I think, and even the God's riches at Christ's expense, I get to go to heaven. He went through hell to get me to heaven by dying on a cross. And we limit our understanding or thinking about grace to that one-time experience. The reality is, I don't think that's what Paul is speaking here at all. What Paul is speaking about here is not just sort of this grace that is needed to get to heaven, but it's the grace that is needed to remain here on the earth and to walk with the Lord in that time that we remain here on the earth. Theologians would refer to this as sustaining grace. And so there's that saving grace, but there's also that sustaining grace. Not that grace that we're dependent upon for salvation, but that grace that we are dependent upon for continuing in our relationship with God. You remember when the Apostle Paul went to God on multiple occasions, he prayed. It, It seems like he prayed a lot for it, but there were these three times where he specifically prayed that God would move what he calls that thorn in the flesh in his life. We don't know what it was. Some people think it was something physical, something eyesight or a frequent sickness or something. But Paul refers to it as a thorn in the flesh. And he felt like it was limiting him in what he wanted to do for the Lord. He goes to the Lord. He said, Lord, please take it away. And the father says, you know what? I'm not going to take it away. I'm going to keep it there because in it, you learn a dependence on me that you wouldn't have if that wasn't in your life. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, and so to keep me from becoming puffed up, conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. A little later in that passage, the next verse, 
But the Lord's response, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. God promises him, I'm not going to take that that thorn, whatever it is, I'm not going to take that away from you, but I do promise I will give you my grace. And my grace will be perfect for you. It'll be sufficient for you. It'll be everything you need to get through those difficulties and do what it is that I've called you to do. That's sustaining grace. You see that example there? That's sustaining grace. That's what Paul is praying here for Timothy. And Paul knows, as a minister himself, he knows that times are going to get hard for Timothy. Times are going to get difficult for Timothy. Maybe he even knows, especially for a timid fellow like Timothy. And he's promising, or he's praying, that God, because he knows that God will do what he has done even in his own life, that God will give him the grace in it that he might get through it. Are you with me on that? And so when he says grace to you, that's what it means. That God promises to be with him, to strengthen him through all those circumstances. The next one that he prays here is for God's mercy. Now mercy, like grace, mercy has been defined in sort of a simple way as not getting what you deserve. And certainly that speaks to the judgment that every one of us deserves. Again, the Bible says that the, the penalty for sin is death. Every one of us in here has sinned. I don't know every one of us in here, but I know every other human being in the world. Every one of us has sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for that is death. And so mercy certainly speaks to not getting that judgment that we deserve for having come short of God's holy standard. But like grace, as we trace it through the scripture, what we discover is that the mercy of God is not just something for the beginning of our relationship with God, but it's something that we need and we are dependent upon every day of our walk with the Lord. It's not just something we need to get to heaven, it's something that we need to enjoy and experience every day of our lives before we get to heaven, that we are ever dependent upon. And so the mercy here that Paul is speaking of is, it's been defined this way, God's compassionate care and protection for the one who is needy and prone to fail. And this is why I think he adds it here for the minister in particular. But every one of us needs God's mercy on a daily basis because we're prone to fail. The minister of God, and whether that's standing right up in here or you're working in the the children's nursery with the babies or, or some other place here, the minister of God is not perfect. Now, they're not a hypocrite. They're not saying one thing and, you know, just ignoring it and pretending no one will know and doing something else. But even with that, we know that the minister of God, the servant of God, the person trying to minister for God, they have their flaws and they have their sin. And I think that the true minister of God, the the person that's really ministering from this heart of, I want to honor you, I want to please you, I want to be helpful to you, I want to be used by you, I think the true minister of God will have what is called an exercised conscience. They're tender. They're worried about not just the things they say, not just the things they do, but even like the thoughts that they have about certain things, or even just the response to certain things. It grieves them, it bothers them. They realize, Lord, this isn't, uh, this isn't you. This isn't of you. Would you change my heart? They begin. That's an exercised conscience. So these guys aren't hypocrites. 
but they're ever mindful of how short they fall in their effort to serve the Lord and his people in a way that is helpful for God's people. Sometimes they'll do the wrong thing, not sin necessarily, just make a wrong decision, mess things up, and other people's lives are impacted by that and affected by that. And they're aware of that, they're cognizant of that, and they want God's mercy in those circumstances. Other times they respond in the flesh. It just comes out, you know, you're driving your car, it comes out. He cut me off, I can't believe it. And then, oh man, Lord, I need your mercy. There are plenty of times where they're faced with a situation and I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right decision is in this instance here. God, would you, in your mercy, would you direct me? Would you lead me? That's the mercy that Paul is talking about. And how comforting that must have been to Timothy to know, how comforting it is for us to know that God promises us his mercy in those things that he has called us to do. And not, you're on your own. I believe I've given you enough lessons on this. God, I need you still. We've been doing this a long time. You should know. I, I, well, I don't. You know, so please help me. And God promises that he will. And so whether you are, whether that is to be a minister or a mom, whether that's to be an employee or a neighbor, whatever it is that God, the, the lot that God has you for in that particular circumstance, know that God promises the, his mercy, his compassionate care and guidance in those circumstances. Paul prays that for Timothy and perhaps reminds Timothy to seek that for himself. And then thirdly, he prays for God's peace. He says, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is an initial experience with God where we, we come to the place of salvation, and that's where peace with God is made. That's where it happens. Remember, sin separates. Just think about it in your own life. You have a fight with someone that you care about, and you, you sin against them, they sin against you. There's a little tension in the relationship. Until you guys come together and you work it out and you say, look, I'm really sorry. I took this class at church. It's called Oxano. I know exactly what I need to do right now, conflict resolution. And so this is what I'm going to do. Until you have that conversation, there's something between you, right? Same thing in our relationship with God. We've sinned against God. And the initial salvation experience where we come to the cross we recognize that he paid the penalty for my sin so that I can now have access back with God. The relationship can then be healed. That's peace with God. And extremely important. And I hope everyone in this room has that type of relationship with God. Your sin has been forgiven and there's nothing separating you from God, uh, God from you and you from God. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. Paul knows Timothy's a believer. He's known him now for 15 years or so. Rather, I think Paul is not talking about the peace with God, but rather the peace of God. The peace of God. You remember Philippians chapter 4. It's a well-known verse. Maybe you don't know it, but uh, it'll be a good one for you to learn. It says, Now, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice, the peace of God. There's peace with God when you begin your relationship with him through the work of Christ, and that continues because of the work of Christ. But here Paul is talking about the peace of God. Have you ever gone into uh, the ocean? You've gone swimming, 
and the waves are coming in and all of that. And if you stay at the upper level of the waves, they move you around, they knock you all over the place. The big ones really take you where they're going to take you. But if you're out deep enough, the waves come, you can dive down under, and it's relatively still underneath all of that. You still hear what's going on above you, but it's relatively still down beneath. That's the concept of the peace of God. Timothy, by taking on this role, is inviting the tumbling waves, the craziness that is above him. It just comes with the task. All right, you had kids, the waves. It just comes with the task. All right, turmoil is going to happen. We live in a fallen world. But that doesn't mean we have to be kind of taken down with the waves as they go. Because there's a deeper place where the peace of God remains. And that's what Paul is praying for Timothy. He's aware that it's up there. He can hear it rumbling by and maybe even feel a little bit. But there's a tranquility down beneath. And so Paul here, he speaks to him of the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the peace of God. And I think that's what people notice in our lives. Because they see your life, it's crazy. Oh my gosh, I can't believe the way you're responding to these things. Because you're down in that lower wa- those lower waters. You have, you're experiencing the peace of God. That's Paul's hope here for his young friend, Timothy. That's his desire. That is his prayer. Now, I want to make one other point here about the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the peace of God. And that is that the tense that this is written, it's this continual tense that is going on. And so we might word it this way a little bit differently. We might word it as grace upon grace. We sang a little song about that. Did you know we were doing that? See, look at Jesus. All right, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, peace upon peace. And, and the point is, that is to say that it's not like God just, here, kid, take a bunch of grace. Conserve it, you know, during your life here. And here's a bunch of mercy for you. Don't you know, spend it all in one place. He just keeps pouring grace into our life, keeps pouring mercy into our life, and keeps pouring peace into our lives. And so if you feel as if grace in your life is lacking or mercy in your life or peace in your life is lacking, go to the Father. And say, Lord, I find myself in the, the tumbling waters. I don't want to be up here. I want the peace of God in these circumstances. And God will begin to direct you. All right, well, first thing you need to do is shut that off, turn that off, come to this, spend some time in my word so you can enter into my type of thinking. He'll, he'll direct you, he'll guide you as to why it might be off. But we have grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, and peace upon peace. Grace and continual grace for the service that he has equipped us for. Mercy to meet our needs in difficulties and peace that we may calmly face whatever circumstances might come our way. And so that is his prayer for Timothy. That's a good one, isn't it? You could pray that for me every day if you would. And I'll pray that for you as well. God's grace, mercy, and peace would be known to you in your life. Now, as we come to verse 3, we take a sip of our water. So if you have water, go ahead and take a sip. Were you really thirsty? Okay. (laughs) Now we come to the first set, the duties that Paul has for him. This is the reason he's writing to him. We already read in chapter 3 last week how, you know, I need you to stay there and put in order the things that are out of order. Well, specifically, we read this. So I'm going to read down to verse 8. It says, Now, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we, we highlighted this a little bit last week, and Paul references this charge that he has already given him. Here now, it's kind of put in writing. Again, that charge, verse 3, is, look, I'm moving on to Macedonia. I don't know why. We don't know why. I suspect they were having difficulties, and Paul wanted to get over there to that region and minister there. But he leaves Timothy now in Ephesus, as it says there in verse 3. And he does so uh, that in his absence, that Timothy might do these couple of things. One, charge, he says in verse 3 also, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The idea of different doctrine, different from what Paul had taught them. Charge them not to teach any different doctrine. The second thing I'll talk about, we'll, we'll look at that in a moment here. Now, to begin with, I appreciate this about the Apostle Paul. Notice he urges Timothy here. He's the ep- Apostle Paul. I almost said Apostle. He's the Apostle Paul. You would think Paul could say, hey, go over there and do it. That he would just command him. But he doesn't. He urges him. He encourages him. He invites Timothy to take on this ministry role And he doesn't command him to take on this ministry role. Now, a little later, he will charge Timothy after he has agreed to take on that role. But Paul doesn't just go around commanding people. I I liked Henry Ironside's take on this thought. He says, when grace controls the heart, that's the entire being of a person. When grace controls the heart, I command becomes I beseech, I urge, I ask, I invite. And so Timothy, we see, he served Paul as a son would serve his father. He served Paul as a soldier would serve his commanding officer. But that didn't cause Paul to see himself as authorized to begin just ordering people around. And so even despite his position as an apostle, Paul chose to exercise influence in Timothy's life as opposed to power over Timothy's life. And so instead of saying, look, you're going to do this whether you like it or not, what Paul does instead is he leads Timothy. He guides Timothy. He convinces, ultimately, Timothy without guile, but he convinces Timothy of the course of action that he should take. And then Timothy takes that on himself, and Paul will further guide him. But we see just in that opening word there, he says, as I urged you. Again, the two things he urged them to do, verse 1, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's uh, actually verse 3. And then in verse 4, charge certain persons not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. These are the things Paul knew was coming to Ephesus. Again, we remember that passage from Acts chapter 19. And there where Paul met with the Ephesian elders one final time, he said, look, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in and they're going to wreak havoc here in this body. Some of them from among you, elders, 
that I'm talking to right now in my conversation, some of them from among you are going to rise up and draw people after themselves. Paul saw this. He knew it. I don't know if it was like a, a prophecy or a word of knowledge from God, or he just knew the way humanity is, but he knew that this sort of thing was coming, and he warned them of it. And so now here for Timothy, he says, Timothy, I need you to go, and I need you to take care of these things. Again, verse 3, he says there, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That would be his first responsibility of the two. There were teachers there in the city that were perverting the gospel with their false teachings. They were perverting the gospel with their teachings that differed from what the Apostle Paul taught and which he ultimately got from Jesus. Paul says, charge them not to teach any different doctrine. Doctrine is a word which means teaching. So you got these people, they're teaching something different from the truth. Paul says, charge them. Now that term there is a military term. And Go in there, you're in charge, uh, Timothy, and I want you to gather those elders together, and I want you to, as a military commander, I want you to command those elders, no, we're not doing that here anymore. We're not teaching these different things from what Paul taught us. We're going to stick to the truth. In our day, we're going to stick to the scriptures. We're not going to make up other stuff or come up with other stuff or find other stuff. We're going to remain where we're going to remain. He tells Timothy to charge them. This is important. Doctrine mattered to the Apostle Paul. You know, it's amazing as you, you look around the, the church, capital C, all around the world, America and the world, doctrine isn't always important to a lot of people. There's a lot of people that refer to themselves as Christians that minimize the importance of doctrine. And they'll say something instead, something more akin to this, you know, the things that really matter are things like love. And it's about kindness. And it's about grace. But doctrine, eh, not so important. Doctrine was keenly important to the Apostle Paul. Now, are love, is love important? Sure. Is kindness important? Is grace important? Of course, all of those things are important. But they don't have to come at the expense of good doctrine. Paul here emphasizes the importance of sound teaching. And he commands that sound teaching be expected in the, in the church there in Ephesus. What we believe is vital. And thus, we must not be misinformed regarding the truth. That's why we spend our time in the scripture. It's so that you become so familiar with the word of God when there is a teaching that is just a little bit off, your antenna will go up. I don't know about that. I'm not sure about it. How'd you come to that? Sound doctrine. Paul instructs Timothy to devote himself to this task. Make sure that the doctrine I presented to you is the one that remains. Second task he gives them is to charge certain people in the town not to devote themselves to myth, myths and endless genealogies. Now, if you've read through your Old Testament, you know there's a number of spots there that some people would call an endless genealogy. They're some of my favorite pages. I love the genealogies. I remember I was teaching through the book of, one of the books of Chronicles, and like the first 10 chapters are genealogies. And there were people like, please stop. You know what I mean? Can we please get on to another chapter? You didn't like it? And I'm like, oh. That's not what Paul's referring to. 
uh, he's not referring to those genealogies that are found in the God-inspired scriptures, and they're scattered throughout the Bible. What he's referring to were fanciful stories that were made from the genealogies. And so if you go back and you look at some of those genealogies, and this guy begat that guy who begat that guy, and then they would focus in on, it came from Jewish tradition, they would focus in on some random guy mentioned one time in the Bible, and they would create this story from fantasy. They'd make up this story. And that's what these teachers were, and they were focusing their attention on. They were bringing these things and making all kinds of point from these fanciful myths and made-up stories. And Paul's like, why are we doing that? Why are we going down this path? Especially when these made-up stories were coming to different conclusions from the sound doctrine that Paul presented. And where it was coming from, people were saying, well, look, I, you're, you're not going to understand this. You're not going to know it. But God, God revealed this to me. So just give me a second. Let me explain to you what God revealed to me. And then you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know about that. Well, of course, because God hasn't revealed that to you. He's revealed it to me. And so let me explain it you know, this way to you. And perhaps God will open up your understanding as he's opened up mine. You see how dangerous that is? Why are we even here? What are we doing? So I can come and just listen to you and your made-up stories? Bring me back here, please. That's what Paul says. Timothy, I need you to go there. I need you to bring people back here. To, in our case, our context would be to the word of God, not to these extra biblical revelations. You remember the term, the Gnostics? This isn't quite yet the Gnostic movement. It's still a little bit early for that, but it's the same general idea. That word Gnostic, you're familiar with the word agnostic? That letter A cancels everything that comes after it. What's an agnostic? An agnostic is a person who does not have any knowledge of God. And so the word Gnostic, it means knowledge. These are folks that had this knowledge that nobody else had that they would bring to these people. In our day, people have this knowledge. And for a fee, you can have it too. You can pay all kinds of money for this. Or if not that, you come to my church. Or you come to my seminar. You come to this thing. With this knowledge that they have, Paul commands them, no, tell them to stop teaching those sorts of things. He uses the words, some versions, fables, myths, and some other versions. It's something without historical reality. That's what it means. And these things without historical reality were leading people astray. They referred to them, in so many words, not literally, but as fresh truths. Ah, I got something. You see, because the Bible, you know, it's boring, isn't it? It's, you know, I got to spice it up a little bit. You don't have to spice it up. These are the words of life. You don't have to spice it up and come up with something nobody's ever heard before. Be careful with that. And that's a danger of, you know, preachers or Bible teachers. As you take these familiar passages, and what could I do to, you know, spice this up, get it exciting for people? Just teach what it says. And let God do what God is going to do. Well, they have these endless genealogies. Now, endless doesn't mean, oh, another genealogy. It means it leads nowhere. The path doesn't come to a, a right conclusion. He says, they do nothing more than promote speculations. That's there in verse 4. So they've come up with these inventions in their own mind. They lead to no certain conclusion. Whereas we know the scriptures lead, they build a firm foundation in our lives, which we can build our lives upon. These really lead to no certain conclusion. 
They lead to more questions, speculations, arguments, and controversies. And it was tearing apart the church there in Ephesus and threatening to ruin a lot of people's walks with the Lord and even prevent people from even beginning a walk with the Lord. Verse 5, he says, Now the aim of our charge, notice he invites Timothy in, our charge, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Notice, Paul's not mad at these false teachers. He loves these false teachers. He wants good for them, and he wants good for the people that they're going to lead. I think that's important. Rather than being angry with them, he loves them, and he wants good in their lives. Paul knew that beside leading these people astray, false doctrine, it divides. It causes controversy and strife and confusion. Rather, what Paul wants is sound doctrine, because sound doctrine produces love in a body of believers, in a group of people. It uh, stems from, you can see there, from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. All of those things which work toward unity as opposed to division. That's what he desires. He continues, he says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say or what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see the word there, swerving, by swerving from these things. That's a word there. It means travelers who lead, leave the high road for a path that leads nowhere. Ever been out in the, the wilderness or the woods? Hiking? I do that all the time. I'm a big hiker. All right. But you ever go out there and you're like, hey, that looks like a path. It's probably some path a deer ran on, made a little bit of a path. You go wandering and you come to the end and there's all like sticker bushes. You got to backtrack and go back to the main path with the signs they tell you to stay on here. They swerved off of the main path to a road that leads nowhere. The idea there being they left the gospel path and they went in a different direction. Rather than coming to sort of this conclusive end that we know is true and we can stand upon, he says here they ventured off into vain discussion. He says desiring to be teachers of the law. So we get an idea of what that vain discussion was. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding the things that they were saying. Or the things that they make these confident assertions about. I know this to be true. Based on what? I had a dream. Oh, okay. Teachers of the law they wanted to be. It's interesting that in the first century, which is when this was written, first century rabbis were referred to as the teachers of the law. And so if we put some of the pieces of the puzzle together, it seems that these leaders in Ephesus aspired to be sort of this Christian version of those Jewish rabbis. You remember uh, when Jesus confronted the rabbis in the Gospels. Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, and then he would quote what the rabbis said, but I say unto you, and that totally offended those rabbis. Who do you think you are? Where'd you go to school? Aren't you the son? Aren't you a bastard child? That, that was the card they were going to pull out. You have no right to speak into these things. We're the rabbis. We're the teachers of the law. We're the ones that know. And so you sit over there and you be quiet, carpenter boy. These guys here, they wanted to be the authorities. They wanted to be the ones that knew. They wanted people to come to them to find out the truth. 
And he goes on there, he says, it's quite a dig, actually. They want to be teachers of the law, but they have no idea what they're talking about. And they're leading people astray. They make these confident assertions. And when you're like, well, what do you mean by that? <gasps> How dare you question me? Confident assertions. He says they've wandered away. They become legalists regarding the law. They preach that a righteousness kept from keeping the law instead of the righteousness that comes because of the grace of God through the work of Christ in our lives. And so by teaching that righteousness comes by keeping all the rules, they reveal they don't understand the purpose of the law at all. He says that they're in verse 7. The Old Testament law, this is really important that everyone in this room understands, the Old Testament law was never intended to make you righteous. You can never be good enough to get into heaven. And so, you, well, if I follow all the rules of the Old Testament, or I follow all the commandments, then I'll be considered righteous and God will let me into heaven. That's not the way it works. The Old Testament law was never intended to make us righteous. The Old Testament law was always intended to reveal to ourselves that we can't be righteous. The law, the Old Testament law, was intended to reveal our need for another way, for an intermediary, for someone to go between us and God and speak on our behalf and say, he's with me. That's what the Old Testament law was designed to reveal. The Apostle Paul says it this way in the book of Galatians. This is the New King James Version. He says, therefore the law was our tutor, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. It was our teacher that could bring us kind of so far, but no further. In that day, a tutor would have been a slave hired to teach the children of the wealthy master, whatever it might be. And so this tutor had complete control over this little kid. But eventually this little kid was going to grow up and become in charge himself. And so the tutor could only bring the kids so far and then say, all right, you're on your own now. And Paul says that the Old Testament law was our tutor to bring us so far. And then Jesus would have to take us the rest of the way. Now, please don't hear. That means I'm supposed to be as good as I can be and Jesus will take me the rest of the way. That's not the point that I'm saying. The point I'm saying is the Old Testament law brings us to this place where we say, oh my gosh, I can't. I can't do anything. And Jesus says, here, take my hand and I'll take you. It reveals our need so we reach out our hand and God will take us. That's the purpose of it. And these guys, they missed it incredibly. And they were teaching something completely different which revealed you don't have any idea what you're talking about. And you want to be this authoritative teacher of the law, but you're missing the point altogether here. Peter and John, they said this. These are so, such important words. They said, And we know that there is salvation in no one else, because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. It's by Jesus reaching down his hand. And perhaps if these men here in Ephesus, maybe if they had listened a little more closely to the Apostle Paul and his teaching, maybe, if they weren't so desperately desiring, that's the word that he uses there, that word means to, to long for and continually pursue until obtained. Perhaps if they weren't so in, desperately desiring to become some teacher of consequence, I have, nobody else has said this, I'm going to say it to you. 
and then I'll sell all these books or whatever it might be. Perhaps if they had felt, hadn't felt the need to be one that would reveal some secret special knowledge that only they had, and instead were willing to just stim- stick to the simple truth of the gospel of Christ, perhaps then they wouldn't have swerved from the truth and began teaching as truth those things which they had no understanding even of. The word of God has revealed everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness. We need not go any place else to find some secret knowledge. Second Peter says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, where do we learn of him through the study of our word, who called us to his own glory and to his excellence. We don't have to go anywhere else but to the word of God. Would you agree? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, um, we even acknowledge we've, we've come to know that truth. Lord, we've experienced that. And I think the more we dig into your word, the more we have that sense of this is the place where I can rest. This is the place I can sit under and I don't even have to sort of do these mind games here to to figure out this or figure out that. I can just sit under it, receive from you, and know that I am in this place where I can confidently build my life. And we're incredibly uh, grateful for that. And Lord, we know that as we kind of drift away from these things, soon we find ourselves swerving. And so much of the message that is around us is opposed to this sort of an understanding. And Lord, it's shiny and it's glittery, glittery and it's alluring and it draws us. And from a human perspective, it seems to make sense and everybody else is buying into it, so why not me? Lord, we want to remain at the place of truth. And so cause us to be students of your word not just so that we can win some contest and test and know a lot about the Bible, but, Lord, that we might draw nearer to you, the one revealed in the word. And so once more, Lord, we ask, bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.